From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. In his acclaimed new book, When We Were Arabs, A Jewish Family's Forgotten History, Los Angeles-born journalist and author Masoud Hayoun recounts one North African family's epic journey, step by step, from Tunisia all the way to California after it was senselessly uprooted from its ancestral land and catapulted into a cold new world by two successive waves of European colonialism. In the introduction of his book, he writes, large swaths of North Africa and the Middle East have been devastated by war and dictatorship and the majority of the countries that the Donald Trump White House sought to ban from entering the United States are Arab. In this context, to revive the Jewish Arab is to demand dignity for an Arab people continuously, derided by the West's self-fulfilling prophecies for the East. America simultaneously funds dictatorship in and drops bombs over much of the Arab world. This week, we bring you the second part of Khalil's conversation with Masoud Hayoun about his new book, When We Were Arabs. It's important first to note that in this book, I do describe anti-Jewish incidents, but I don't focus on them as much as the majority of histories on our homelands and on the history of the Jewish Arabs, which the majority of them are written by Europeans and they very conveniently focus on anti-Jewish incidents. These are politically driven readings of our history uh, that it is very important to note, do not contextualize anti-Jewish incidents within the greater whole of an Arab history. There's still a lot of work to be done before we piece together the Arab history that existed before, not through this European lens or this kind of Western gaze, uh, that shows that Jewish Arabs, yes, had eras and epics where they faced extreme mistreatment, uh, denigration, and killings. But so too did other communities within the scope of of, uh, Arab societies to focus on one particular group ignores the fact that there were many groups within Arab history that found themselves at odds with government, with their governors. And then Arab history is often portrayed as something apart from European history. It's important to note that at a time when European Jewish people or when European governments envisioned themselves or self-purported to be liberating Jewish communities of the Arab world, their own Jewish communities were facing blood libel, very typical widespread phenomena in anti-Jewish government-endorsed behavior in Europe. So that's to say that Jewish communities within the Arab context shouldn't be from the rest of Arab society because uh, our communities were several times over uh, victims of violence and discriminatory behavior. That makes us more Arab in actuality because every single Arab community in the Arab world has grappled with autocratic governments since time immemorial. 
And there wasn't the systematic ideological anti-Semitism that Ashkenazi suffered in Europe at the hands of Christian monarchs and, and what have you. It's a different history. It but, is a different yeah. history, and we need to observe the fact that within the Western context, there continues to be a number of anti-Jewish incidents. Look at Pittsburgh under the Trump administration. And yet you never see with the exception of on the part of the Netanyahu administration, and he was brutally rebuffed by the majority of Jewish Americans, the insinuation that anti-Jewish incidents in the West divorce Jewish Western people from their home societies and from their identities. The response to Pittsburgh attack was not Jews cannot be Americans in the same way that the response or the implication on the part of these European histories that focus on the experiences of Jewish Arabs with anti-Jewishness, the insinuation on the part of these histories is frequently that Jews can't be Arabs because they've experienced too many incidents of violence and discrimination. That's absolutely a double standard. You don't see that happen in the West. To come back to your grandparents' story, through which we see all these different phenomena just through their short lives. We see so much happening in North Africa. And one moving passage of your book, When We Were Arabs, you write, quote, Oscar could have lived a marvelous life if only he had stayed, if only he had been left alone by the Zionist project and allowed to stay. The Hayuns had left Morocco but remained within the boundaries of the Arab world in Egypt. And the abroad that Oscar had imagined before 1948 was in Beirut, within their world. The Arab world was being made impossible to him and to so many others. Explain to us how being so close to Palestine, being Jewish, his journey actually led him all the way to the USA instead. The imagination of what would have happened if 1948 wouldn't have happened is something that is both interesting to me as a kind of a philosophical concept and heartbreaking to me. And I end up saying the same of my grandmother, that neither of them envisioned themselves before 1948 leaving their countries. Oscar had traveled a little bit more than Daida. For Daida, the idea that she would ever go to Algeria, not very far from Tunis, or that she would ever go to neighboring Libya was out of the question to her. It was, it was mind-boggling to her that she would ever leave. And these people ended up leaving not just once, but several times over they were displaced. So the idea here is that politics displaced these people, that politics dispossessed these people because they hadn't envisioned that they multiple times over would be asked to pick up and leave the Arab world. The abroad that they envisioned was still within the purview of the Arab world. Oscar dreamed of going to another country, but never a non-Arab country. That was unthinkable to him until it became the case that he had no other choice. His family, his father and his family, did briefly try through France. They went to Israel. He left for many reasons, just couldn't stand it. The way Arab Jews were treated in Israel was unbearable. He ended up leaving and he ended up in, in the States. Even France seemed to be rather 
unbearable to him. So he seemed to have this allergy to racist treatment and colonialist mistreatment of himself and his family. Tell us a little bit about those episodes and how he ironically ended up in, in America. Some people might argue America is the largest colony, the most colonialist country in many ways, but he did end up here and you were born here in this country and all that. So give us like a short brief. I know it's there's so much to cover, but that trajectory of how through many failures, fiascos, he ended up in a lesser evil type of place for him and for Daida. It was more agreeable being in, in the United States. First of all, the United States is a settler colony, I, and I end up thinking of that very frequently, uh, that my family did end up leaving occupied Palestine, but I am actively occupying land that is an indigenous people's land that needs to be returned to them, that we actively need to be thinking as settler colonists, you and me and every yes, other American yes. citizen who's not of indigenous origin in this space, need to actively think about how to decolonize and how to empower the indigenous people to direct their own decolonization movement. For Oscar, I think the question is posed so beautifully because it, there were dual kind of reasons. There were a lot of articles, and this is also a tangent, but really important to note, the Arab revolutions of 2011, there were a lot of articles that were written about whether it was a financial movement, that there were a lot of people who were unemployed and that people were going hungry and that they say that that was the more concrete reason for the revolutions of 2011. And then there are people who disagree fundamentally with that and say that it was a dignity issue, that the Arab peoples no longer wanted to be uh, beholden to autocratic governments. And that's why people rose up in 2011. For Oscar, in the trajectory that would bring him from Egypt ultimately to the United States, it was a little bit of both, as I believe it was in 2011 and before and after for the Arab peoples who rose up. Not to say that his movements were an act of rising up, but Oscar was a very proud man. He was not the kind of person who, after living in Egypt, at the helm of what he did consider Omedunya, the mother of the universe, to be considered to be secondary to anyone else in the world was unthinkable to him. And I love that about him and admire it. By the same token, like many North African people living in France in that generation and until today in the banlieue that we've seen described by movies like La Haine in France, that he was unable to provide for his family because of the failure of so-called integrationist policies in the French context. So there was very much an effort to push back the North African new arrivals that were showing up in France and mass at the time. And Oscar was treated both with indignity and also left on the margins of uh, the socioeconomic French social fabric. So ironically, what bothered him in France, he was being treated just like a dirty Arab. Basically, he was an basically, Arab. Basically, there was also this a certain degree of anti-Jewishness that persisted well after the Holocaust and France reckoning with its own role in delivering its own indigenous Jewish populations into the hands of the Nazi death camps. But there was very much an anti 
Arab, anti-North African sentiment that we see persist until today that targets both Muslims and Jews. If you go to a place in Paris, on the Paris suburbs, like Aubervilliers, for example, where I have family members, you'll see Jewish North African people who are new arrivals from North Africa, who are living side by side with, with Muslim North African people, who are ghettoized in the same way, who find it very difficult to be part of mainstream French society, a mainstream French society that rejects them actively, both socially and economically, and then blames them for so-called communitarism, for staying with themselves, for huddling together in their little ghettos. So this is what basically excluded him from France. He couldn't stand that kind of uh, life. But before arriving in France, he had had problems in Egypt as well. You briefly talked about it, how Zionism made it impossible for him in Egypt. What happened to people like him in Egypt that he had to leave his own country? There were several incidents, and there's a point in the book where I describe in the chapter on exile various circumstances that were similar throughout the Arab world, where the occupation of Palestine effectively turned local non-Jewish Arab populations against Jewish Arab populations. And that was, from all appearances, a policy of the erstwhile Zionist forces that they were attempting to sow mistrust between Jewish and non-Jewish Arab communities. Well, they did more than attempt. You actually managed to do that. Again, to quote you, you say, Israeli missions in Arab lands served multiple purposes. While they lasted, they supplied Israel with crucial military intelligence. And when they were foiled, they made it impossible for Jewish communities to continue to live in their homelands without being suspected of treason. Such was the effect of Israeli terrorism in the Arab world amid Israel's launch. So give us a couple of examples of what happened in Egypt and Iraq and other places that sowed this mistrust. Absolutely. There were specific attacks that were carried out by Israeli intelligence in major Arab cities like Cairo and Baghdad that had turned erstwhile governments that in 1948 had been able to differentiate between their local Jewish indigenous communities and Zionists that made it impossible to make that distinction. Not impossible, it would have still been possible for those governments to not turn against their local Jewish communities as they ended up doing, but it made it increasingly difficult for local societies to view Jewish, indigenous, Arab members of their homeland social fabric without any suspicion. I didn't write the book jacket material, but there is a very interesting phrasing that one of the publishers wrote. Today, in the age of Likud and ISIS, Oscar's grandson, the Jewish Arab journalist Masoud Hayoun, whom Oscar raised in Los Angeles, finds his voice by telling his family's uh, story. The likening of Likud and ISIS, the likening of the Zionist project and ISIS is one that's very compelling and is an interesting question to have. The way that the Islamic State has endeavored to insert itself in overall conversations about the role of Muslim Westerners, the relationship to the rest of their non-Muslim societies, 
is the way that Israel at the time was trying to drive a wedge between Jewish indigenous communities and the rest of their indigenous societies. It was endeavoring to make it impossible to see a difference between Jewish people and Zionists in the way that the Islamic State through terrorism endeavors to make it impossible to see any difference between the Islamic State and Muslim people living their lives. And the creation of Israel was also, to my knowledge, the first introduction of this idea of a, of a nation state based on religion rather than any other kind of belonging. I don't recall before that having seen nationalist groups in the Middle East claiming themselves to be first an Islamic nation. That's such an important point to make because prior to 1948 with the Arabist movement and then in the immediate aftermath, there was a movement within the Arab world toward a kind of a secular Arabist way of decolonizing and reconfiguring our role in the world after uh, Western intervention, Western occupation. And, without and, 1948, without the occupation of Palestine by what would become more or less a religious-based movement like Zionism, I don't believe, and this is something that I've heard from academics, this isn't my own hypothesis, I don't believe that we would have seen the movement towards Islamism that we ended up seeing in the Arab world. In a way, the Arab world has been reacting to... Uh, phenomena started in Europe. First, there's the idea of nationalism, a nation-state, which is yes. a modern idea. And then a further wrinkle in that was that, hey, let's make a religion a nationality, <laughs> which is the Zionist uh, innovation. Uh, it also happened in India, but that's not in the region. And one fascinating anecdote, and there's so many things to pick from this book, it's really hard for me to limit myself, but to jump into uh, another part of your book, you describe your grandmother's Daida's reaction when confronted with Palestinian Bedouins and her shock. She says, quote, you say, the Bedouin stared at her in anger. It was not as in Tunis. We were the enemy now. She had become one of the colonizers, end of quote. It reminds me of a new segment I watched, uh, I think around 2005, as Israel was preparing to leave Gaza, in which an Israeli settler in Gaza was complaining to the journalist that everything was so good and Arabs were getting along just wonderfully with, with the, the settler colonialists. And for proof, he would bring one of his Palestinian workers on his property, his huge property, and tell him, well, Mohammed, come on here. Come on here. Don't be shy. Aren't you happy here, Mohammed? Come on. Just tell this journalist how happy you are here. And it was so grotesque. Mm -hmm. And the poor Palestinian so embarrassed, not, <laughs> not wanting to say anything. What was so striking to me about this episode is that the Jewish Zionist the Israeli settler looked so 
to me, Algerian or North African, and he probably was. And so here's this upside-down world for me. All of a sudden, the French, quote-unquote, the European colonizer is actually one of us. <laughs> he's actually a North African face, but he's yeah. a colonizer, and he's treating the, the Palestinian as as the colonized it just was this one moment where i was in this in this zone that i was not familiar with it's a mind trip i think <laughs> that for daida in that moment just putting myself in her shoes or trying to empathize with that kind of feeling that comes from previous interactions with beddo that she had in tunisia who were kind of an expression of our indigenous Tunisian cultural heritage, even though they wandered and probably didn't experience the same kinds of hard-set borders between Tunisia and Algeria that we pretend exist for us city folk. The idea that there would be a Bedouin in the world who wouldn't like her was a shock. And that's a beautiful thing to me is, and a terrifying and heartbreaking thing to me is that in that particular moment, Daida, before we'd had these conversations that would lead to when we were Arabs, looked at these people perplexed because they reminded her of Tunisians. And yet the logical conclusion of that for her wasn't, we need to, we need to struggle for the liberation of these people. It was, how come... We're not one people right now when she's actively part of the movement that's dispossessing and killing them. But that ended up becoming, toward the end of her life, very much part of the way that Daida viewed the world. And that's something that should be a hopeful enterprise to people, is that Daida, in her 80s, after we had the benefit of having these conversations on what that incident meant, was able to understand that, yes, if you looked at Palestinian people and you saw people who reminded you of Tunisian people, the logical conclusion of that is to decolonize and to ensure that they live good lives and that the world should know that these are human beings who deserve life, who need to have what was dispossessed from them returned to them, and that they deserve the dignity that we know that we thirst for as North African people with our concept of hogra, of the idea that we have indignation, that we have a desire to feel dignified and honored and respected and loved. Yes, and one great takeaway from your book, among others, but one definitely makes it unique, important, and original in my view, is the revelation of the fluidity of identity, how one does not necessarily preclude another or several others, and how fluid these identities can sometimes be, depending on one's circumstances. Towards the end of your book, you say your grandmother, Daida, quote, often told me, marveling jokingly at the randomness of life, we almost became Latino. Jewish, Arab, African, Latinos. It would have been easier. It is an axiom of the left that race is a social construct, and I agree with that. And yet there's so little curiosity, let alone comprehension, 
of the complexity and nuance of ethnic identity. I think Latinoness is an interesting case study for people within the Arab context to learn from, especially because Arab Americans are currently having a overarching conversation for the past several decades on whether or not we're to be classed as white in the census and in our reckoning of ourselves. Latino people, within their discussions of what Latinx identity is, do not make it mutually exclusive with whiteness necessarily. There are people of every kind of background who become Latino. There are many Jewish Latinos whose ancestries are not in the indigenous peoples of the Americas, whose families come from Eastern Europe and who end up being Mexican Latinos, who may also identify as white, even though identifying oneself as white has been so destructive. And we need to look at that and wonder whether whiteness exists as an identity or a pretext to kill and dispossess people. So I think that there are a lot of lessons to learn in particular from Latinoness. And I think that moving to Los Angeles, we're not Latinos in my family, but Latinos ended up becoming our communities. Daida, her first American friend, was a Puerto Rican woman who she ended up no longer being friends with because she thought that the Puerto Rican woman was interested in my grandfather. Yeah, which, and she, um, she but thought that she, was her community. It she, was the first community that she had in the United States. And it's a community that, like Arabs in a lot of ways, comprises multitudes and is very welcoming. There are quarters of the global Arab peoples that are very parochial and that believe that you have to be Sunni Muslim and fit a certain kind of cookie cutter mold to be Arab. But those people are defining Arabness for themselves. There's no one person who defines what Arabness is. Those people's definition of Arabness doesn't matter to me so much as this Arabness that behaves like the Latinx identity and that it is an identity that welcomes a lot of different people of a lot of different skin tones, of a lot of different religious backgrounds, of a lot of that welcomes Armenian refugees from the genocide and Imazren who don't view Arabness as antagonistic to their identity, even though they may do so and have that choice, of course, to reject Arabness if they feel that it's toxic to them. So that is the Arabness that I describe is very much influenced by the Latinx identity that I ended up learning as somebody who grew up in Los Angeles with the benefit of trying to understand this Latinx identity and the legacy of Los Angeles as a place that used to be Mexico that is deeply influenced by the Mexican culture. There's something magical about the Latino experience to us because that difference, that separation that the colonialist brought with him, it's blurred. It's not a place like in Algeria or in Tunisia where you had this enforced and artificial distinction very often. Here you have shades of gray. You have people who sort of identifying as white, others who sort of identifying as indig indigenous and everything in between which is a different story than what we've lived in North Africa. North Africa, the religious separation was what really made it so hard because everyone in their own camp decided, no, I am this and this is it because God wants it. But 
when you use race, which is fake, as we've talked about, which is an artificial concept, it's harder to keep track. And here in America, yeah. you have Latinos who are effectively every race, every color, every religion, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I liked how your grandma Daida just instinctively found this affinity with this woman. She said she looks Tunisian to me about, yeah. the, about the Puerto Rican and became friends. It's still a beautiful story that, and that became the case subsequently with Mexican American people who became our family in Los Angeles was that it was very much the case within the US, within that settler colony that we're describing for other communities to turn their backs on us when uh, Latinx American communities never did. There's an acceptance of hybridity and multiple identities that yes. we don't necessarily find in other communities. And that makes it very interesting. This continent, America, for whatever reason, ended up mixing people more. We talk about the proverbial melting pot. And we do have mixtures of people that are undeniable and hard to forget because they're still happening. They happen. Whereas in North Africa and the Mediterranean, people kept erasing those mixtures, which kept happening, but kept being denied throughout history. Here in America, it's been become more difficult to erase the idea of being hybrid. And the Latinos are, by definition, a hybrid community. That mm -hmm. makes it maybe more welcoming, as you were saying. Maybe that's, that's that, that connection, that here's a bunch of hybrid people who accept other hybrid people who are multiple their identity. Absolutely. That's one thing that's always struck me about uh, Latinos, that they, in a way, just like Daida, always felt they're closer to us because they're not insisting fanatically they're one thing at the exclusion of the other. Absolutely. I mean, within the context of individual Latino societies, I'm sure that they have their own problems with colorism, but colorism is really something that exists in the United States that seems to divide people. Conversations that I've had with people of Cuban ancestry, for example, they'll talk about the way that they may have had experiences with colorism in Cuba, but became either black or white in the United States. That the United States exports white supremacy as colorism throughout the world, that people end up becoming these kinds of ideas of black and white that exist artificially now in our home countries. It's interesting to look at circumstances like the North African circumstance and to what degree colorism has been influenced by the very American white supremacist idea of who is white and who is black. When you look at Anwar Sadat, in yes. this country he would definitely be classified as black. Not in, in Egypt. Homes, for example, th there are people in our family who are of every kind of skin color. And my grandfather always used to describe his grandmother as a black woman. But it's impossible for me to know exactly what, what she was. I mean, was she, was she black or was it just my grandfather didn't think to call somebody dark skinned the way that we do in the United States? I have no way of knowing 
what the circumstance of this woman was, but then why is it so important for me to know whether she was dark-skinned or whether she was black? If she was a dark-skinned person from Africa, that was how we would have classed her in our home civilizations without this lens of blackness and whiteness as constructed by the United States. So I have no idea, but should I know? Do I need to know whether my great-great-grandmother was black or whether Oscar just didn't know that we call some non-black people dark-skinned in the United States? It's a mystery to me because there are no pictures that exist of her because in their generation, there's a picture of her husband, but they didn't agree to her having her picture taken probably because of their view of morality at the time. But I'll never know how to have viewed her as an American looking back at an Egyptian historical legacy. Well, it just shows you the absurdity of these classifications. Yes. White versus black versus, we used to hear about yellow, the yellow race. Yes. The reds, red skin and all that. Absolutely absurd. Absurd classifications that didn't make sense to us. Within the context of a single North African family, you can find somebody who would be classed as black in the United States, who is the father or mother of someone who is very light-skinned with uh, what we would say is blonde hair. First of all, North African, and I think a lot of Arab people, say that any hair color that isn't jet black is blonde. I don't know if you've had this experience. Uh, very randomly, we'll say that if anybody has like a fleck of, of mousy brown hair, then they'll, oh, look at that blonde person. Yes, yes. I've heard... uh, our, our ideas of color are ridiculous and make no sense, and they're warped by this... American fascination with identity as color palette, which doesn't make sense. Like myself, I never thought of myself any uh, specific color and never really questioned what I was until I came to this country. Yeah. And, and then what did you become and did then, it change over time? Then I still wasn't asking myself this question, but some, some people became friends. Actually, one of them was a coworker, was my boss at the newspaper in San Bernardino, a very sweet lady not hostile or anything, but she kept referring to me. She was really Danish-American, so very fair. Very white. Yeah. Very white. <laughs> and she didn't necessarily say, you know, she didn't sound hostile to non-whites, but she kept telling me that I was olive. So I started looking at myself and wondering, really, olive? And I didn't see that greenish tinge that she was seeing. <laughs> well, to her, I was in that fascinating group of olive-skinned people, whatever that meant. My mom told this story, and it didn't make it into when we were Arabs, but my mom was a dental office assistant, and I think this was in the 70s or 80s, but she was working for an older white man in Beverly Hills who asked her if she was a colored girl. <laughs> and she had no idea what he was asking her. A colored girl? What does that she was perplexed. He was trying to insinuate that she was black or just saying that she was a person of color. Or she was perplexed by this idea because she had never thought of herself in that way. And then when you have this weird artificial American colorization of race, it throws you into a mind warp. You have no idea what people see you as. And then how they're placing you within an American historical legacy when our family during the earliest stages of 
white supremacy in this country was far off in North Africa not thinking of these thoughts at all. So we see that like in When We Were Arabs with these weird kind of artificial manipulations of identity in the United States with their own legacies of this settler colony being built on the genocide of indigenous peoples and on the enslavement of sub-Saharan African peoples, that there are all kinds of ways of twisting and turning the way that people end up viewing themselves in artificial and astounding and ridiculous ways. To my mom, this kind of line of questioning that made her question where she stood in American society was not unlike what happened with Daida in Tunis when she said that she was a Tunisian and all of a sudden it was impressed upon her that she was an Israelite. What does any of it mean? What does, what does Tunisianist mean? What does Israelite mean? What does being a black person mean in the United States? All of this should be interrogated because ultimately it comes from policy and from education and from inculcation and years of brainwashing to view oneself as with or against or separate from other people. That's journalist and author Mas'ud Hayoun speaking with Khalil Bindib about his new book, When We Were Arabs, A Jewish Family's Forgotten History. We'll hear more after a break from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Aftermath of the 2015 massacres in Paris, many in France and abroad defiantly exclaimed, I am Charlie. In this book, When We Were Arabs, you exclaim after the names of your grandparents who raised you, quote, I am Daida, I am Oscar, I am Tunisia, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, Palestine, and all of the adjoining nations that identify as Arab. I am the wealth of love I feel for the people of those nations, end of quote. And another quote right after that one, in your final chapter, you say, it would be a mistake to read this work as simply that of a Jewish man reclaiming Arabness. Tell us what you mean by this interesting and profound quote. Thank you for raising it. I think that it's not for me to tell people how to receive when we were Arabs, in the sense that it's not for any author to tell people how to receive their book. You put it out in the world and people take from it what they're going to take from it. But there is a phenomenon of people from different political stances trying to make when we were Arabs something that they wish that it was or not having read it and twisting it to their different purposes. One type of this sort of phenomenon is people who wish that this was a polite little memoir about the curiosity that is the Jewish communities from Arab countries 
being at the nexus of these two seemingly mutually exclusive identities. Even if our politics align, I reject entirely the idea that when we were Arabs is a polite little story about uh, that gawks at the existence of Jewish Arab people. First and foremost, this book is in defense of the Arab people, is geared toward the liberation and empowerment of the diverse Arab peoples as described by Nawale Sadawi, the famous Egyptian feminist decolonial thinker. This redefines not just the Jewish Arab people, but the diverse, endless number of peoples comprised by the vast Arab people. And all of the peoples who are tied to our struggles insofar as the struggle for Arab liberation is tied to the struggle for universal human liberation. So I will not accept from people that this book be an illustration of an interesting people that no longer exists or reclaiming the Jewish Arab identity. No. This is a political theory of Arabness. This is a political theory for the Arab peoples. This is one that's meant to inform the way that our Arab children from our diverse Arab peoples in the future ask themselves questions about themselves in a way that is curative to what has happened to us in the past and what continues to happen to us going forward. This is a theory, a political theory of Arabness and humanity and belonging. This is not a tiny exploration of two lives or of a fraction of the Arab people. It is an exploration of the Arab peoples and it must be received as such. As for Je Suis Charlie and the attacks that happened in 2015, of course, any kind of killing I'm 100% against. It is very interesting that the hashtag that was brandished at the time was Je Suis Charlie and not Je Suis Hypercacher, not I am the kosher supermarket that was shot up where a Jewish Tunisian man who was the son of uh, an important Jewish Tunisian leader was killed. And I think that that says a lot about French society and how genuine or how earnest the Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie Hebdo hashtag was, was that it fixated on part of the attack that took down a news outlet that was denigrating parts of French society. That's not to say that they deserve to be gunned down. Obviously, any kind of killing breaks my heart. But why the unequal treatment of two parallel circumstances that happened on the same day? Why was the killing of a Jewish Tunisian man not centralized in people's outpouring of anguish? And how come in that attack on Charlie Hebdo and was it very seldom said that there was an outpouring from the general Tunisian public, not just the Tunisian, Jewish Tunisian public, of heartbreak over the terrorist attacks that killed an Arab man living in France. 
I don't know if he identified as Arab, that would have been his choice, but certainly a Tunisian man living in France. Because I don't think it was about human life, ultimately, and that's the part that unsettles me about it. What should break people's hearts is not whether an attack was perpetrated on uh, Charlie Hebdo headquarters or on Hypercacher, it should be the loss of human life. And that's not what it was about, evidently, because there wasn't an equal amount of attention paid to both attacks that occurred on the same day. It isn't about respect for or love of humanity or defense of human dignity or freedom or any of that. It's also important to note the context is one that is increasingly turning toward the Front National in France that's turning toward xenophobia. So even if there were people who were North African who were victims of the attacks that day, they could be better weaponized by the French far right if there was more of a focus on the attacks on Charlie Hebdo, which often brandished anti-immigrant ideas, than on Hypercacher as a Jewish business where there was a Jewish North African who was gunned down. Speaking of reactions and manipulations, um, what have been the, the reactions so far of the, the mainstream media? I know there must be a lot of good reactions and sympathy in quarters like KPFA, Pacifica, radio, and more progressive media, Jewish Voice for Peace, etc. But I'm curious about the mainstream media, the New York Times, the NPRs. Have they reviewed the book? What has been their reaction so far, since you go so much against the grain? That, to me, is an interesting phenomenon. It's been really... To say that it's all over the map would be inaccurate. I think that I have been very lucky to get good press from the mainstream media, and that there have been a few more Zionist outlets, I would say, that have also given me good press, but that it's very clear from reading what good press I've received that they haven't read the book, and that they are, <laughs> that they are including the book in lists of Jewish books as the one Jewish book that isn't about the Jewish-European Ashkenazi experience in the United States. So very frequently, I'll read like a list of books, and they'll include When We Were Arabs, just to check off of their list, that they included a Jewish author who isn't from a European background. Ah, I see. Okay, so well. so I, I'm very clearly being tokenized by some people, and I don't really care about these kinds of people either way. I'm very thankful for the good press that I've received from other people. There have been Zionist outlets that have taken me on and attempted to say things, but none of it has been unexpected or particularly intelligible. So I am tuz, as they say in Arabic. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you got some reviews in, in the mainstream media because it's a difficult thing when you're taking on some of the taboos. Any prospects for translation into French, Arabic, or, or Hebrew? Imminently, and it's been slowed by the coronavirus, there is a Tunisian publishing house that will be releasing throughout the Arab world the Arabic edition of When We Were Arabs. Wonderful. Uh, Inshallah Yarab. But it has been slowed significantly. It was supposed to have been done by October of last year for an international book fair in Tunisia, but obviously there was no international anything going to happen in Tunisia uh, late last year. But my hope is 
not just for the book, but in general, to go back to Tunisia. I don't envision myself living here long term as a settler colonist. I hope not to end my life here as a settler colonist. I hope to go back to where I'm from and be buried in the nation of my ancestors. And that is the Tunisian nation insofar as because I worked for Al Jazeera, I can't go back to Egypt, which kills me. But I'm very proud of the Tunisian nation. There are people rising up uh, constantly to address issues of government accountability in the Tunisian nation. I am proud of our indignation. And uh, insofar as the borders of Tunisia are man-made and irrelevant ultimately to who I am, I'm proud of the Algerian people. I hope to go back to Algeria, even though I have no known ancestors from the legal space of Algeria. And I hope that the Moroccan people will demand from their government a solidarity with the Palestinian people uh, as a, a descendant of Moroccans. I hope that we can have that accountability from our government and I have confidence that we will demand it. So I do hope to go back to North Africa, both for the publication of the Arabic version of this book and existentially of that, because that's where my life continues to be. Anywhere that I live in the world that isn't in North Africa is besides the point, is a little bit decentralized from the center of gravity in my life. I hope it comes out in French and in Spanish as well, because those are languages that are widely read worldwide, and more languages, of course, but more urgently in French and Spanish, and, and of course, Arabic and Hebrew as well. Before we end, would you read this passage for our listeners that I, I found especially significant, meaningful? It's on page 184, line five through the end of that paragraph, the word solidarity, that long paragraph. If you could read that for us, that'd be wonderful. Sure. Before their departure, the Hayun sold the home on Rue Zahra before the government could seize it. But that did little to prepare the family for their journey. They were only allowed to bring 300 Egyptian pounds per person with them. The rest had to be confiscated by the government. So they bought some gold bangles and one bracelet in the shape of a snake with ruby eyes. They planned to sell them abroad. They never did. I wear one bangle today. I will die with it all that's left, not of our family fortune, but of our family. I hope that the Egyptian revolutionary government gave our families money to a peasant family. Maybe it kept a child alive, and that child was the great-great-great-grandmother of someone who will free our Arab world once and for all. Someone who will prove to their children and theirs that to be Arab is a thing not of great sorrow, or of exile, or of the past, but of progress and beauty and solidarity. Any last thing you'd like to say that we missed? There are certain things about the medium of biography that were a little irritating to me. For fiction to exist is a, an alive and a beautiful enterprise. I ended up dedicating this book to our youth because I felt that so much of what I was talking about was dead and in the past and had to be by, by virtue of the thing that it doesn't sit well with me because the things that exist for our people need to exist now and for young people and as a work of creativity that exists that looks forward into the future and that exists in art and not in dead things and people 
So I think that fiction that comes from our part of the world that interrogates our identities is so much more of a, a beautiful and enlightening and lighthearted enterprise than this book that was born of, of mourning two dead people. I think the thing about your book is that it uses the lens of this one real family, these two wonderful, interesting characters to see a much larger world, to, to see through them, through their eyes, through what they've been through. And it's a little bit what fiction does. And that's what I attempt to do in my story. It's the only thing about fiction is that it's freer. It can stop worrying about exactitude. That makes me happy to have put that to you because that's been a thought that I've had kind of weighing on me for a while is fiction and creativity is what we need now. There, there's so much death already in the world that we need to give birth to new and exciting and promising things. Masoud Hayoun is a journalist and author of the new book titled When We Were Arabs, A Jewish Family's Forgotten History. The book gives a vivid account of his grandparents' lives in Egypt, Tunisia, Palestine, and Los Angeles. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Aman, aman, aman. We still fighting for our dignity.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.